Chapter 38 Nature is not interested in happy endings. Hendrik Willem van Loon, The Story of America, 1927 All right, watch this. I place my word on the Scrabble board. S-T-O-M-P. Only eight points, but with a mot compte de souple, that's 24. I add this number to our tally sheet. It's late afternoon on Thursday, February 14th, 2002, and I sit across the kitchen table from my professor, a half-completed game between us. She fidgets with her square wooden tiles. For once, I actually lead in points. 198 to 167. Dim winter light through open curtains illuminates the room. Babette sighs, lips pursed. What an awful choice. I feel it describes the weight of your boots on my poor neck. Surely you have not added the numbers correctly. I grin with triumph. If you want a recount, go ahead. She takes a drink of mineral water. No, no, that would only revisit my agony. But listen, I hear a knock. It must be our guest. She half rises, then settles back. Ross, would you be good an answer? Let me collect myself a moment. Okay, don't cheat and look at my letters. I approach the door and open it wide. Cold wind swirls past me, ruffling the salt-and-pepper hair of a woman who stands alone on the porch, suitcase beside her. At the curb, a yellow Broadway cab shifts into gear and pulls away down Tolman Street. Something is wrong. I squint, focusing on my professor's face. At least it looks like her face. The same round head and unmistakable features gaze back. I stare, as surely as the day I moved in, surprised by Babette standing naked where I now hesitate. Details begin breaking through. This woman is shorter, with a slighter build, her form more feminine. Before either of us can speak, Babette shoulders me aside. Rosalind, come in, come in. Ross, don't just loiter there. Be a decent host and put on water for tea. Would you like tea, Rosalind? The woman steps inside and sets down her luggage. She looks around, then nods at each of us. My professor reaches out, clasping her hand, then leans in for a hug. Elizabeth, Rosalind murmurs, her voice hesitant. It's so good to see you, to meet you finally. Quietly, I turn away and set a kettle on the stove. Low conversation sounds from the hallway. After a few moments, Babette enters the kitchen, long-lost sister in tow. Ah, Rosalind, you should properly meet Ross. He lives in the pantry downstairs and helps with daily activities. Babette reaches into a cupboard and takes down two gold-rimmed china teacups. I shake Rosalind's hand. Pleased to meet you. I've made the guest bedroom upstairs already. She fixes me with mild blue eyes. Thank you. This is a strange time for us, but I appreciate your hospitality. It's, well, hard finding words. My professor clears her throat. <clears> throat> Thank you, Ross. I do not believe you will be required the rest of today. Please put away that deplorable game. We shall play again when I feel more energetic. Why don't you visit that Zoya girl this evening? Tomorrow, however, I have invited several students over for dinner and a film afterward. Your assistance will be greatly appreciated. She turns away. Now, Rosalind, which tea would you like? We have quite a selection. Oh, and then I must provide a tour of my library. I sigh, fold up the scrabble board, and tilt our tiles back into the box. My winning words disintegrate, now a meaningless jumble. 
Behind me, the two women sort through packets, and Babette launches into a long anecdote about the British East India Company. Rosalind looks perplexed, but once the kettle whistles, holds out her cup. She follows my professor downstairs, steeping tea in hand. I stash our game in a closet and dial the house of many pleasures. Zoya answers after a few rings. Hello? Hey, it's me. I got the night off. May I come over? Definitely. Sal planned a Star Trek marathon later, but we can do something else if that sounds lame. I grin. <laughs> well, after all the new weirdness around here, some outer space escapism would be perfect. Right on. Hey, do you think you'll have tomorrow night free also? Don is throwing an 80s theme party. It should be fun. I'm going as Grace Jones. Not sure about Sal. He might be Nina Hagen. Whoa, that sounds awesome. Maybe I can borrow one of Babette's wigs. Think that would do for Blanche on the Golden Girls? Zoya laughs. Oh my god, I wish. Okay, well, I'll be over in a bit then. An hour later, Sal answers my knock at his apartment door. He is uncharacteristically dressed down, with dark stubble and hair wound up in a black beret. Behind him, videotapes are strewn across the elevated bed. I step inside, and my boots crunch a styrofoam takeout box. Chow mein oozes onto the carpet. Sorry, I apologize. Didn't see it down there. Zoya's door opens, and she approaches for an embrace, then stops short. Sally! I told you to throw away your cheapy Chinese. That's fucking disgusting. All right, all right. Sal scoops up the decomposing food, opens a window, and tosses it outside. From the sidewalk below comes a light plop. Zoya rolls her eyes. <sighs> Great. Anyway, how are you, Ross? What's up at home? She hugs me, then draws back for a short, sweet kiss. I sit down on a plastic milk crate and drop my knees. Well, just when I think it can't get any more bizarre, Babette's long-lost sister arrived today. Here's the thing. They're almost identical. I mean, I've seen pictures of her daughters. There's a definite similarity. But this is just creepy. Sal thumbs through a container of records. Who even has long-lost sisters anyway? I shrug. Europeans, apparently. It's just like her old French novels I've been reading. They all have plot twists, where the protagonist discovers a sworn enemy is actually the secret sibling of his fiancée or something. Zoya smiles. At least your life is never boring. I reach out and stroke her leg. Seriously? Hey, let's start the trek. I could handle turning my brain off for a little while. Sal selects a videotape, and we all climb on top of his bed. Soon, all thoughts of mysterious relatives are light years from my mind. The next afternoon, I catch a bus home and begin work on entertainment preparations. Babette has already laid out a fresh scarlet tablecloth in the dining room. We augment this with vases of ferns and other greenery picked from the garden. I set places for six, using blue and white spode bluebird china. My professor nods, pressing her palms together approvingly. Excellent. We should expect guests around seven o'clock. After dinner, I will show one of my favorite films, Babette's Feast. You remember that, don't you? Of course. It started kind of slow, but what a conclusion. Do you mind seeing it again? Well, my friend Don is throwing a party. Since you seem so preoccupied with Rosalind, I thought it might be a good night to stay out. That is fine. At least we saw it together before. Oh, what a wonderful story. The way Babette gives up everything she has for one last fantastic meal. At any rate, here is my idea for our actual feast. 
I have filet mignon steaks frozen downstairs. They would taste delicious in teriyaki sauce. Do you think we have some? My eyebrows raise. If you mean multiple gallon jugs, then yes. Babette grits her teeth. I see. An observation not without barbs. Perhaps you might retrieve the meat and defrost it while I suffer in silence? I would retire upstairs to assuage my wounded feelings, but Rosalind waits with a book of hers. Something about ancient astronauts? Don't you dare laugh! Really, this visit is not at all what I expected. I grin. That lecture on tea trading in the British Empire was an upper alley, huh? She flies back Sunday. I'm sure you can get along until then. My professor bobs her head. True, I have little reason for complaint. This reunion is such, well, a difficult experience. Nothing could have prepared me. She looks over my shoulder. Ah, Rosalind, would you assist us preparing dinner? I turn and see her sister, who stands behind me, book in hand. She sets it down awkwardly. Here, I offer. There are some potatoes we need peeled. Thanks, she says softly. I'd like to help. I find Rosalind a potato peeler and set her to work, then fetch the steaks from downstairs. As the meat softens in a tub of water, I pour vegetable oil into a bowl. When the potatoes are done, we roll them in oil and shake on garlic salt. She smiles at this. Oh, such a mess. It's a good thing I packed several shirts. It's all over my sleeves now. I hand her a dish towel. Don't fret, both you and dinner are well seasoned. There should be enough greens for salad as well. Let me check. I open the refrigerator. Don't dare touch my fruit, calls out Babette. What's that? My canned fruit. It was very expensive. I saw you eyeing it with sheer greed. I notice a glass jar above the vegetable crisper. Multicolored sections of mango, peach, and whole cherries float in clear syrup. Do you mean this? I hold it out. Yes, put it back at once. Okay, okay, don't worry. Nobody will eat your fancy fruit. At 6.15, I slide our garlic potatoes into the convection oven and switch it on. The machine emits a high-pitched whine. On the stovetop, meat bubbles away under tinfoil in two metal pans. Soon, delicious aromas thicken the air. Twenty minutes later, the doorbell rings and I answer it. It's Angela, the chubby blonde woman who attended our first dinner party. It seems so long ago now. She steps inside and I take her parka, hanging it up in the closet. Wow, she exclaims. I wish I could keep my apartment this warm. Feels like 90 degrees in here. I nod. You're close. We peg the thermostat at 88. Babette likes it Mediterranean. Well, she's earned it. So how are you doing? I never see you on campus anymore. Oh, that's because I transferred to Portland State about a year ago. Just working on my history degree there. That's fine. But, you know, I do miss Portland community. It's so much more laid back. Just then, my professor bustles in, Rosalind close behind her. Angela, she cries. So pleased you made it. This is my sister Rosalind, visiting all the way from Florida. Babette gushes onward with delight. Angela takes all my classes and tours. She was on my last trip to the high desert. Wasn't that wonderful? Such a shame my health no longer permits further excursions. Come into the living room. I must put on some music. We follow, and Babette flips through her classical records. Bruckner? No, not tonight. Mozart. 
perhaps. Let me see. Brahms? Oh, dear, dear me. Is that the doorbell? Ross, please go answer. I discover two young men on the porch, one with dark curly hair, the other taller, a long ponytail down his back. Looking for the Ellsworth dinner party and international cinema spectacular? I inquire. Then you found the right spot. They step past me and look around with wondering eyes at the artifacts, from rusty old Mauser rifle to antique clockwork. My professor has finally settled on an LP in the other room. I recognize a favorite, Walter Gieseking, playing Debussy. The shorter man holds out his hand. Andreas Giannopoulos, he declares. We shake. The other man is still distracted by Babette's clock from Quebec. God, just look at this, Andy. You can see its mechanism through the glass. He straightens up. Sorry, these pieces are amazing. I'm Brian. Are you from one of Dr. Ellsworth's other classes? I shake his hand as well. My name's Ross, former student, now basement resident. Here, come along. They trail behind me into the parlor, where Babette stands before her grand painting of the Chateau de Lac, hands aflutter in the midst of a story. You see, Felix Yusupov possessed quite a complicated sexual life, and later claimed Rasputin came to the Yusupov palace in hopes of seducing his wife Irina. Except everyone knew she was at some dasha in the countryside. Many historians wonder if he actually lured Rasputin there by suggesting a homosexual liaison and then murdered the man. We will never know, though he did love telling graphic stories about the man's cock. Some wondered why women became so enamored with Rasputin, this oafish holy man, but Yusupov claimed his secret was simply a very large wart atop his penis glands. You can imagine how that might stimulate a woman's clitoris quite pleasurably. Oh, Andreas and Brian, this is wonderful. Welcome to my house. Ross, open some wine and fetch glasses, please. I tap my boot heel against the carpet. Okay, do you have a bottle preference? Yes, you will find a red burgundy in my study. It is exquisite. The spirit of Babette's feast decrees. We cannot drink anything less tonight. I head toward the study as my professor makes introductions all around. Besides several torn-out Le Figaro articles on her writing desk sits an unopened bottle. I half expect Carlo Rossi, but this label is lettered in French. It looks top shelf. In the kitchen, I tear off foil, twist down a corkscrew, and pull. It bursts free with a light pop. The scent is delicious, rich and fruity, yet slightly tart. From a cupboard, I select crystal goblets, set them in a row, then fill each halfway. As I finish, Babette leads her guests through the door. She picks up a glass. Ah, excellent. Thank you, Ross. Everybody take one. We must drink a toast. But to what? We should salute your health, Dr. Ellsworth, suggests Angela. Babette chuckles. Oh no, my health is too poor. Let us toast our gathering tonight. Two special times with friends. Perfect, agrees Andreas. We all drink deeply. Angela shakes her head. You know, I thought nothing could surpass that fancy old wine you served at that one dinner, but this is spectacular. I choke a little and frown. My professor glares at me, then inspects our steaks cooking away on the stovetop. I think these are done. If you are all prepared, find places in the dining room. Everyone sits, and I present our food on ornate serving platters. It takes several trips. 
Once everything is ready, I take a seat between Angela and Brian. Rosalind sits across from me, back stiff. I meet her mild blue eyes and nod. She allows a slight smile back. Babette looks around with satisfaction. Thank you all for coming. As I've mentioned, later we shall view a film called Babette's Feast. It tells the story of a woman who pours everything she has into a magnificent meal for her friends. I make no such grand claims about this repast before us, but hope you find it acceptable. Please, eat. She hesitates as our guests begin cutting away at their meat, then clears her throat. <coughs> there is a story I must recount that concerns this meal. As we all know, the French are reputed as masters of fine cuisine, but this was not always so. During the 1500s, France underwent a great period of turmoil, mostly because of wretched Protestants. She turns her head to wink at me. Catherine de' Medici ruled the country with great strength and cruelty. I consider her a true inspiration for any woman who wishes to thrive in this world. At any rate, one of her sons was Henri III, a weak-willed individual, most likely homosexual. Catherine even ordered him served meals by attractive naked women in hopes of changing his persuasion. But this failed utterly. Henri surrounded himself with a sycophantic group of young men who fawned over him and became known as les mignons, uh, which means uh, the dainty ones or cuties. Now, with France so frequently in a state of civil war between religious groups, food became scarce for common people, and even royalty experienced difficulty finding a cow that hadn't been worked half to death. Such beasts naturally tasted like shoe leather. The vile English, of course, took as much advantage of the situation as they could and entered a period of relative prosperity. Their upper classes slaughtered healthy cattle and dined on meat like what we consume tonight. Babette pauses to take a large bite of steak. She washes it down with two sips of wine and continues, red stains down the side of her mouth. So, it came about that when a group of English nobles visited Catherine de' Medici's court, they imported beef for an evening's banquet. Everyone else had gone so long without consuming decent meat, they fell all over themselves with compliments. The English smirked and said, yes, our cutlets are indeed tender. One might even say they are as tender as Le Mignon. Well, many French courtiers found this observation hilarious and soon called an especially good cut of meat a filet mignon, a cut of cutie. The English, for their part, considered Henri's little playmates rather unappealing and adopted the word for themselves into mignon. So, under Anglophone usage, the French cutie became a mindless obeyer or drone. It is amusing how such things happen, we. Oui? Well, you must admit you have learned something tonight, and for no extra cost. The table bursts into laughter. Brian elbows me in the ribs. Does Dr. Ellsworth ever run out of these stories? He asks. I set down my fork. No, this is pretty much her all the time. A complete history faucet. Andreas gestures at his plate. Everything is so wonderful. It's like I've died and gone to heaven. Angela dabs her lips with a pink and white serviette. I'm already full, but I haven't tried everything yet. Maybe just one potato. They look so good. Could you pass those, Rosalind? Brian leans back and stretches. 
God, I can hardly move. Someone may need to kick me during the movie if I pass out. While our guests consume final portions, I clear away empty dishes and rinse them in the sink. My limbs hang heavy from wine and rich food. With a sponge, I scrub each piece of the elegant spowed bluebird service and set them in the drying rack. The metal pans take longer, where teriyaki sauce and meat particles have baked onto the bottom. I give up and leave them soaking in soapy water. From the other room, chairs creak as students rise, following Babette upstairs. Soon dialogue from the film filters down. Just as I finish washing up, my professor appears in the doorway. She beams at me. <laughs> Thank you for your help, Ross. I really feel dinner tonight was a success. No problem. Yes, it did seem like everyone enjoyed themselves. Won't you keep watching the movie with them? Oh, I have seen it so many times. But I come asking a favor, since I am now weary. Would you please fetch a book from the basement? It is called A Distant Mirror by Barbara Tuchman. Andreas, that Greek student, is interested in the late Middle Ages, and I recommended her work as an excellent treatment of the period. While you are down there, be sure and notice Sartre's nausea, that wonderful novel you spurn, reposing in neglect. Babette, seriously, I will read it eventually. I nod and dry my hands. Just a second. My boots clip downstairs to the library. The gas fireplace flickers away and soft orange light bathes every surface. My professor leaves it burning all winter long to ward against moisture. I scan past her extensive Roman history section until titles look promising. The Invention of the Crusades, Women in the Middle Ages, The Land of the Cathars. I must be close. At last my eyes focus on Tuchman's book. I pull out the hardback and return upstairs where my professor is seated at the dining room table. She smiles and casually flips open the title page. With a cry, she drops it as if the pages were flames. Oh no, this won't do. Ross, Ross, find me a pen, something quickly. Calm down. I have a permanent marker in my pocket. Here, is that okay? Babette takes the black sharpie and hunches over her book, scribbling madly. I recognize a familiar stamp on the front page. It adorns most every tome in the house and reads, From the Library of Albert Ellsworth. My professor crosses out the first name with violent strokes and scrawls Elizabeth above it in large capital letters. There, she crows. Now it can be properly lent out. I will rejoin the others upstairs now. Oh, but first, Ross, there is a scheme I have contemplated these last few days. Do you know whose birthday comes in two months? I frown. Um, lots of people. That's way too vague. Babette's lips crack wide. April 20th is Hitler's birthday. Can you imagine my plan? I will have a proper Catholic mass said for Adolf Hitler. I clap a hand against my forehead. Can you really request that at church? I don't know what official procedure is, but surely someone would object. Oh, you can have mass said for anyone. Right. But do you think St. Agatha's might ask to perform it in the middle of the night, when no one's paying attention? You may have a point. I know. I will have mass said for Adolf of Linz after his hometown in Austria. That may keep people from asking too many questions. I don't know why it has taken me so long to discover your true purpose in life, but it is absolutely crushing my dreams. Babette waves her arm dramatically and moves near the staircase. I follow. 
So you're still fine with Rosalind helping tomorrow on the tour, right? Yes, she will come along. It is my Mount St. Helens trip. Honestly, I do not look forward. This cold weather is unbearable so early in the morning, and even on a heated bus, my bones never fully warm. Uh, But that is enough complaints. Thank you again for assistance with dinner. Uh, Go have fun tonight. Rosalind and I should return late tomorrow afternoon. I shall see you then, dear Ross. She turns and walks up the stairs, steps hesitant. I return to the kitchen and finish drying the dishes with a towel. Colorful plates and bowls clatter together, stacked away in the china cupboard. Serviettes and dish rags whisper down the laundry chute. Downstairs, in my quarters, I throw on a thick olive drab army jacket, then toss toothpaste, toothbrush, deodorant, and clean underwear into my satchel. Through casement windows, white frost coats rhododendron leaves that tap against darkened panes. As I exit the house, Babette calls out a muffled comment from above, and her students burst into peals of laughter. 